The Guardian. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Mr Andy Slaughter. Number one, Mr Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Mr Andy Slaughter. According to Revenue and Customs, some families earning just £13,000 a year will lose over £1,000 a year in tax credits from April. But before the election, the current Work and Pension Secretary said our warnings that low-income families would lose tax credits were a lie and irresponsible scaremongering. Did he mislead the public? What we have done is increase tax credits for the lowest paid people in our country, and we've actually lifted over a million low paid people out of income tax altogether by raising the personal allowance. I think if he's worried about taxation issues, he should have a word with his candidate for the Mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, and ask whether he's going to pay his taxes. Mark, Mark Reckless. Many, many Irish people were moved by what the Prime Minister said about Bloody Sunday. With it becoming increasingly clear that Eurozone support for Ireland is conditional on them saying yes in their referendum, will the Prime Minister confirm that this country will support Ireland whatever it decides? We are certainly very good friends of the Republic of Ireland and the people of the Republic of Ireland. It is their choice to sign the Treaty of Fiscal Union and it is their choice to have a referendum on that treaty and is in all things people's views in a referendum should be respected. Mr Ed Miliband. Mr Mr. Speaker, before turning to other matters, does the Prime Minister agree with me that the allegations by Deputy Assistant Commissioner Sue Akers at the Leveson inquiry about widespread corrupt behaviour at the heart of the press and the police are devastating, and such behaviour can have no place in the national institutions of our country. And does he further agree with me that this underlines the importance both of the police inquiry, which must get to the bottom of these allegations without fear and without favour, and the Leveson inquiry itself? completely agree with the Right Honourable Gentleman about this issue, and I think there is all parties' support, both for the Leveson inquiry, which needs to get on with its work that it is conducting, I think, in a very reasonable and thorough way, but also proper support for the police inquiry. And I think it is important to to make this point. Of course, there's always a debate about what is um, right for newspapers to do to get stories in the public interest, but it is hard to think of any circumstances in which it is right for police officers to take money. Mr Speaker, can I thank him for that answer? On the Leveson inquiry, can I ask him in the weeks and months ahead to ensure that none of his senior ministers do anything to undermine its work? And and will he accept that the Education Secretary was ill-judged to say last week that the inquiry was having a chilling effect on freedom of expression? Will the Prime Minister now disassociate himself from these comments? And urge, his, and urge his colleagues, whatever their closeness to particular newspaper proprietors, not to undermine the Leveson inquiry. To this question last week, and the Education Secretary, as the rest of the Cabinet, fully support the Leveson inquiry and want the Leveson inquiry to proceed with the very important work that it does. That is the position of the Education Secretary and the position of the entire government. Mr. Ed Miliband. I, 
I do, I do thank the Prime Minister for that answer. I, I do have to remind him that the Education Secretary said the big picture is there is a chilling atmosphere towards freedom of expression which emanates from the debate around Leveson. I hope the Education Secretary, who is sitting further down the bench, will have heard the Prime Minister's words. Now, let me move on from one area where that, I hope there can be cross-party agreement to an area where there isn't. On Sunday, the man who ran the NHS for six years, Lord Crisp, said about the Prime Minister's bill, and I quote, it's a mess, it's unnecessary, it misses the point, it's confused and confusing, and it's setting the NHS back. Why does the Prime Minister believe that with every week that goes by, there are yet more damning indictments of his NHS bill? Let me just make one further point about the Leveson inquiry, because I think it is important. I think what my right honourable friend, the Education Secretary, was saying, and I think what's important for all of us in this House to say, is while these inquiries are going on, I do think it's important for politicians who, come on, let's be frank, benefit sometimes when the press are a little bit less hard-hitting than they have been in recent years. It's important for us to say we support a free, vibrant, robust press. I do think that's an important point, and that is what uh, he was saying. Now, turning to the turning to the health reforms, turning to the health reforms, the right honourable gentleman did actually say something last week that I agreed with. He said this. He said the NHS will have to change because of the because of the rise of the age of the population, because of the rise in the number of long-term conditions, because of the rise in expectations and costs. Sounds a bit familiar, uh, Mr. Speaker. He's right; it has to reform. The problem for the Labour Party is they are against both the money that needs to go into the NHS, which they say is irresponsible, and although they supported competition and choice in the past, they don't support it anymore. Mr Speaker, he seems to have forgotten the question I asked him. It was about Nigel Crisp, who ran the health service for six years. He was the chief executive of the National Health Service, and he says his bill is a mess and confusing. But he obviously won't want to listen to him. Let me ask him about somebody else, who appeared on the Conservative Party's uh, platform at the Spring Conference in 2010. He hosted the health secretary... The health, he's, not, he's not here, I don't think. He hosted the health secretary's... He he hosted the Health Secretary's first speech, and he advised the Labour government, that's true, and he's the GP at the head of the clinical commissioning group in Tower Hamlets. And he wrote to the Prime Minister on Monday and said this, We care deeply about the patients that we see every day, and we believe the improvements we all want to see in the NHS can be achieved without the bureaucracy generated by this bill. Well, well they say no, but this is a man who's in charge of a clinical commissioning group. Mr Speaker, isn't it time he recognised that he's lost the confidence even of the GPs that he says he wants to be at the heart of his reforms? There are 8,200 GP practices covering 95% of the country implementing the health reforms, which is what they want to see happen. No, he asked me. He, he asked me. He asked me if I will listen to those people who ran the NHS over the last decade. Well, let me give him a selection of people who ran the NHS in the last decade and what they think of competition. This is what Lord Darzai said. The right competition for the right reasons can drive us to achieve more. This is what John Hutton said. He was a health minister under the last government. They don't want to listen to Labour ministers when they used to... 
when they used to win elections. But anyway, this is what he said. Competition can make the NHS more equitable. That is the view of a Labour Secretary of State. What about an advisor to the last Labour government, Julian Legrand, who specifically looked at competition? And this is what he said. The measured effects of competition have not been trivial. Evidence shows that the introduction of competition in the NHS could be credited with saving hundreds of lives. He doesn't want to listen to past Labour ministers because he's taking a totally opportunistic position in opposition to this bill. Mr Speaker, the reason that 95% of GPs are now having to implement part of these changes is because he's imposed them on him. And, 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 and Dr Everington addresses this in the last line of his letter because he says, your government, I believe it's the letter of the Prime Minister, your government has interpreted our commitment to our patients as support for the bill. It is not. Yeah. And 98% of the Royal College of GPs oppose the bill. I have to say, though, Mr Speaker, it's hard to keep track of opposition to this bill because in the last seven days alone, the Royal College of Physicians have called their first emergency general meeting in their history about the bill. He's lost the support of the British Geriatric Society and the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health. So every week that goes by, more and more healthcare organisations come out against this bill. I've got a simple question for the Prime Minister. Can he now give the House a list of significant health organisations who are still wholehearted supporters of the bill? He specifically said that 90... Is it important? He said... So the Prime Minister has been asked a question. Let's hear the answer. He said that 98% of GPs opposed the reforms. That was the figure. 98%. Let me give him the actual figures. There are 44,000 members of the Royal College of GPs. A total, out of a total of 44,000, just 7% responded opposing the bill. And what about the Royal College of Physiotherapists? 50,000 50, Royal College of Physiotherapists. 2%. 2%. I know that's enough for the unions to elect you leader of the Labour Party. But that's about as far as it'll go. well trained today mr speaker but, but let me let me tell them their let me tell them their support for the health bill is digging their own burial of the next general election now i did i did i did ask him i did ask him a specific question i know by now he doesn't like to answer the questions but i just asked him a simple point which is who supports his bill, and answer came there none from this Prime Minister. But let me refresh his memory as to who opposes his bill. There's no good, by the way, the Deputy Prime Minister smirking. I, mean, I don't know whether he supports the bill or opposes it. Uh, which day of the week? You support it? Oh, he supports it. Oh, he supports it, Mr Speaker. Well, 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 well there's, there's firm leadership for you. Right, now, Mr Speaker, let me refresh his memory as to those who want the bill withdrawn, the Royal College of GPs, 
the Royal College of Nursing, the Royal College of Midwives, the Royal College of Radiologists, the Faculty of Public Health, the Chartered Society of Physiotherapists, the Community Practitioners and Health Visitors Association, and the Patients Association. Mr Speaker, doesn't it ever occur to him? Mr Speaker, Mr. Speaker, doesn't it ever occur to him that just maybe they're right and he's wrong? He didn't mention the National Association of Primary Care supporting the bill, the NHS Alliance supporting the bill, the Association of Chief Executives of Voluntary Organisations supporting the bill, the Foundation Trust Network supporting the bill, Lord Darzai, Labour Minister. He was the surgeon you hired to run the health service. But look, here we are, four weeks in a row of NHS questions, but not a single question of substance. Not one. All about process, all about politics, never about the substance. Now, Mr Speaker, we all know it's leap year, so maybe just this once I get to ask the question. We all know what he's against, but isn't it time he told us what on earth he's for? Thank you, Mr Speaker. In my area there are plans for 120 metre high wind turbines between the beautiful villages of Newmask and Upleatham, which are less than a mile apart. Does the Prime Minister agree that such giant turbines should not be built so close to residential areas without local people having a say? We do want to see a balanced energy policy, and there is a place for renewable technologies in that balanced energy policy. There are two changes that we're making that I think will be welcome to him. One is we are cutting the subsidy to onshore wind because I think it's been oversubsidised and wasteful of public money. And the second thing we're doing is when the Localism Act fully comes into place, that will give local communities a greater say over issues like wind turbines. Of course, we tried to do that earlier by abolishing the regional spatial strategies that the last government put in place, but we lost that case in the courts, so we need the Localism Act to come into force in full. Tony Lloyd. Mr Speaker, the, uh, the Prime Minister answered a question to my honourable friend for Hammersmith earlier on, with a little more abuse, I think, than he would have wanted, but does he recognise that there are 200 couples in his own constituency with 400 children, there are 600 couples in my constituency with over 1,500 children who will lose working tax credit, possibly up to the yeah. level of £3,800 and more. This can be 25% of their income. Can he, without sounding complacent, say, how will he answer those couples and their children? Yeah. The, the, the point that the right old gentleman knows, we have had to take difficult decisions because of the enormous debt and deficit that we inherited. Now, in taking those decisions, we've protected the poorest families by increasing the child tax credit. That is what we've done. We've also helped the poorest who are in work by lifting a million people out of income tax. The question has to come back to Labour. You left us with this mess. What would you do about it? Mr Richard Graham. Mr Speaker, this summer, in my constituency of Gloucester, as everywhere around the country, people will be looking forward with huge excitement to the start of the Olympic Games in our country. 
opportunity to celebrate how well the UK manages these great global events, but not everybody sees it as that sort of an opportunity. The General Secretary of Unite sees it instead as an opportunity for a general strike. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that nothing could be further from the spirit of the Olympics, nothing could do more damage to the reputation of our country? Mr. Speaker, I think my honourable friend speaks for the whole country when he says that what the General Secretary of Unite said, and let me quote it directly, he said, I'm calling upon the general public to engage in civil disobedience. That is what he said. And let us remember, Unite is the biggest single donor to the party opposite, providing around a third of their money and had more role than anybody else in putting the right honourable gentleman in his place. It is not good enough for them just to put out a tweet. They need to condemn this utterly and start turning back the money. Mr Speaker, no top-down reorganisation of the NHS, no reduction in frontline police officers and no cuts to tax credits for low-income families. Why does the Prime Minister find it so hard to keep his promises to the British public? We promised to increase spending on the NHS. We're boosting spending on the NHS. We promised a cancer drugs fund, and it's 10,000 people have got extra drugs through that fund. We promised that we'd have doctors growing faster than the number of bureaucrats, and since the election, the number of doctors is up by 4,000, the number of bureaucrats is down by 5,000. That's what coalition policy is doing for our health service. Mr Stuart Jackson. The Prime Minister closed the loophole. Uh, from multinational companies that allows the migrant cap to be flouted using uh, intra-company transfers? Or is this another tough immigration policy which will fall victim to the curse of Clegg? I think think on this one my honourable friend is being unfair. We do have a tough migrant cap for migrant workers. Business said how important it was to have intercompany transfers, but only at relatively high salary levels. That is what we put in place, and I think that demonstrates that over time we will be able to both control immigration but do so in a way that doesn't damage business. Nick Rainsford. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, we now know that the government was made aware of fraud allegations at A4E before the Prime Minister appointed that company's chairman uh, as his. Uh, families are. As the Prime Minister is in danger of acquiring a reputation for ill-judged personal appointments, will he tell the House what independent checks he believes should be carried out before such appointments are made and whether any such checks were carried out in respect of Emma Harrison? Well, first of all, let me be absolutely clear. I was not aware of any allegations of irregularities when Emma Harrison became an advisor to the government on troubled families. And at the time she was appointed, there were no formal investigations into A4E. There was just the company's own probe into irregularities. Now, I do think this issue needs to be properly dealt with. I'm concerned that, subsequent to Emma Harrison's appointment, information needed to be passed up the line more rapidly to ministers. I've asked the Cabinet Secretary, Sir Jeremy Hayward to review the guidelines for this across government and into this particular case. But I have to say, when he talks about the horse having bolted, he perhaps might want to put into his question, might want to put into his question that Emma Harrison was given a CBE by the last government. And of course, all, all of the allegations that are being made are all into contracts that his government handed out. A little bit more transparency about that might be a good thing. Dr. Sarah Wollaston. 
Will the Prime Minister join me in paying tribute to the courage of injured war photographer Paul Conroy from Totnes, who was injured showing the world the horrors of the Syrian regime? And will he join me in thanking all those who helped to secure his safe passage to Lebanon? I, I certainly join the hon Honourable Lady. It is very important the role that the media do in being in incredibly difficult places like in Homs in Syria to bring the truth and to bring the news to the world and that's what Paul Conroy uh, was doing and that's what Mary Colvin was doing when she tragically lost her life. I certainly pay tribute to him and also she says above all pay tribute to the very brave people who helped to get him out of Syria uh, many of whom have paid an incredibly high price. Uh, I can tell the House that Paul Conroy is now uh, safe uh, he's been in our uh, embassy in uh, Beirut in, in Lebanon he's been uh, properly looked after and I'm sure that soon he'll want to come home. Sheila Gilmore. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Last October, the Chancellor announced a new policy called credit easing. Can the Prime Minister tell us how many businesses have been helped? <laughs> The, the, the Chancellor said at the time of the autumn statement that the policy would be in place at the time of, uh, for, for the budget, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Let's hear Mr Peter Alder. Let's hear Mr Peter Alders. Thank you, Mr Speaker. High streets across the country, including those in Lowestoft, Beckles and Bungie in my constituency, are facing tough trading conditions at present, including the prospect of a 5.6% increase in business rates. Can the Prime Minister outline what the Government are doing to support traders to enable them to grow their businesses and to create jobs? I think the Honourable Gentleman is right to, to raise this issue. There are real concerns about the hollowing out of some of our high streets and the number of empty properties. What we've done is doubled small business rate, rate, rate relief scheme. That has helped an estimated 330,000 small firms. We're removing legal red tape requiring ratepayers to fill in paperwork to claim that relief, which is something Labour refused to do while in office. But also, working with Mary Portis, we have a whole plan for how we can try to help reinvigorate our high streets, because I think it's absolutely vital for our towns and cities across the country. Mr Nigel Dodds. The Prime Minister may have seen the headlines in the newspapers today that the happiest people live in Northern Ireland. As the major party of government for the last five years in Northern Ireland, we in the DUP benches, of course, are not surprised by that. One thing that overshadows that happiness, of course, is the high and escalating price of petrol and diesel, which is the highest, the highest not only in the United Kingdom, but the highest in the European Union. Can the Prime Minister bring happiness to all parts of the United Kingdom by agreeing to do away with the August fuel tax rise increase and reduce fuel allowances as soon as possible? Well, I'm delighted to hear that the people of Northern Ireland are the happiest of the United Kingdom. I have to say to the Honourable Gentleman that their representatives in this House don't always give that impression. <laughs> but um, but uh, maybe, I've, maybe I've been missing something. Um, we recognise that families and businesses are continuing to feel the pressure from very high prices. We cut fuel duty and scrapped the automatic fuel duty stabiliser. That has meant average pump prices are six pence lower than they would have been under the previous government's plans, but clearly we're being impacted here as well by a higher oil price. Freya. Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, this week the government took tough action 
on unacceptable tax avoidance. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that the principle of paying a fair share of tax should apply to both banks and former mayors of London? I think my honourable friend makes an important point. Whether it is Barclays Bank or, frankly, it is Ken Livingstone, people should pay the proper amount of tax, and I hope that HMRC will look carefully at all these sorts of cases. Frankly, for Londoners, many of whom live in Labour-controlled areas with high Labour council taxes, will be pretty angry about what they've seen, and they will probably conclude that Red Ken has been caught red-handed. has reported that the government's tax and benefit changes will hit families with children five times higher than those without children. Is this what the Prime Minister means by the most family-friendly government ever? Is it fair uh, or is it just another broken promise? What this government's done is increase tax credits for the least well-paid, to lift people out of tax, to introduce free nursery care for two, three and four-year-olds and expand it for those families. All those things have made a difference. Incidentally, she didn't mention, of course, that she herself is sponsored by the Unite Union and she could have taken this opportunity to condemn Len McCluskey. Stephen Metcalf. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Let's hear Mr Metcalf. Mr Metcalf. Since the furore broke over work experience, uh, has my right honourable friend had uh, any businesses and or organisations come forward to support this vitally important and publicly popular initiative that will help young people get the skills they need to get into work? I think my honourable friend is entirely right. I think uh, the whole country wants to see more young people given the opportunity that work experience provides. And the good news is, since this row has uh, been going on in the pages of our newspapers, we've actually had expressions of interest from 200 small and medium-sized employers who want to get involved in this programme. And I think it's time for businesses in Britain and for everyone in Britain who wants to see people have work experience stand up against the Trotskyites of the the Right to Work campaign and perhaps recognise the deafening silence we've had from the party opposite. Happily, Mr Speaker, I am able to welcome the Prime Minister's commitment to the reform of the European Convention on Human Rights and the parts of the European Court on Human Rights. Um, and will the Prime Minister give a commitment to allow this House a proper debate whenever the uh, uh, Brighton Declaration is published? And will he ensure that, uh, once again, the principle of subsidiarity is respected and the British courts have a proper say in what goes on in this country? Well, I do want to see the principle of subsidiarity get a fairer hearing uh, at Strasbourg. That was what was really contained in the speech I made uh, at the Council of Europe about the reform of the court, so that it doesn't become a court of the fourth instance, where someone's already been in front of a, a local court, a court of appeal, a Supreme Court in their own country, and then to the ECHR. So we do have proposals for reform. Clearly, what is debated I- I- in this House, we now have the backbench committee that has an enormous number of days in this House, and perhaps they will give over time not enough, I hear. They've got, they've got more than enough, in my view, and they can make over a day for that debate. So Robert Smith. Mr Speaker, does the Prime Minister agree that one of the best ways to deliver on our commitment to the fairness agenda 
is to go ahead as quickly as possible in implementing the coalition agreement to raise the tax threshold to £10,000. Well, what the coalition agreement commits us to is real increases in that threshold. We've achieved that in budgets uh, over the last two years, in spite of the difficult conditions we face uh, in the economy. I do think it's a good idea to lift people out of tax. It particularly helps low-paid people and particularly helps low-paid women. Greg McClymont. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Ministry of Defence is buying tankers from South Korea when the work could be done here. The Ministry of Defence says, and I quote, it will not consider wider employment, industrial and economic factors in procurement. Why won't this arrogant and complacent Prime Minister stand up for world-class British industry? I do stand up for world-class British industry, and as I said, when I travel the globe, I'm very happy to have British Aerospace, Rolls-Royce, on an aeroplane with me, promoting great British companies. It's just a pity that when I do so, I get attacked by the Labour Party. David Morris. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Is the Prime Minister aware of the tragic death of my constituent, Penny Hegarty, from Overkellett? Penny's husband, Dr Phil Hegarty, believes that his wife's death is just one example of system systemic management failures at the University Hospitals of Morecambe Bay NHS Trust. Oh. Will the Prime Minister assure Dr Hegarty and all of my constituents that recent work to improve the management will continue and that this trust will be turned around? Well, I can certainly give my honourable friend that assurance, but first of all, I'm sure the whole House will want to send the deepest condolences to the husband and family of the honourable member's constituent, Penny Hegarty. I know my right honourable friend, the Minister of State for Health, has met local MPs on a number of occasions to keep them updated. Clearly, patients have got the right to expect far better standards of care. I know that the CQ and Monitor have both raised uh, concerns about standards at the Trust. As he says, it is being turned around, but that work needs to be undertaken with all speed. Graham Brown, who is the Director of Shelter in Scotland, described the proposal for a bedroom tax as grossly unfair and shows the UK Government is simply failing to listen to the voice of reason put forward by housing professionals, social landlords, MSPs and individuals. Does the Prime Minister accept that widows and widowers left in their family home when their children leave on a low income can lose up to 25% of their housing benefit support if he continues with this? Is it just that he's unfeeling or is he just determined to get his way? We're grateful. The Prime Minister. The, the, the issue is this. We desperately need to reform housing benefit. If we hadn't done anything about housing benefit, it was expected to cost over £24 billion a year. As his own welfare spokesman, uh, the, the member for Birmingham, Edge Hill, said, Beveridge would scarcely have believed housing benefit alone is costing the UK over £20 billion a year. That is simply too high. I have to say, Mr Speaker, I'm getting slightly frustrated with these statements in principle of reform. They said they are in favour of a benefit cap, but they vote against it. They say they're in, in favour of welfare reform, they oppose it. They recognise housing benefits out of control, but every attempt to deal with it, they frustrate it. Amber Rudd. Mr Speaker, on this leap day, when shy men throughout the country will be nervously hoping that their girlfriends might make a commitment to them, can I ask the Prime Minister to give romance a nudge and to remind us and to confirm with us that the reforms through the welfare system will always, always support hard-working families? I um, was wondering where the Honourable Lady was going with that for a minute or two. Uh, 
<laughs> but she's absolutely right. It is uh, a leap year, a very special uh, day where all sorts of things uh, can happen, all sorts of possibilities. But the absolute key thing is both through our tax system and our wealth welfare system, we should be encouraging families to come together and stay together and celebrating commitment. Sir Gerald Kaufman. <laughs> is the Prime Minister aware that the entry clearance office in Abu Dhabi has rejected an application by Mrs. Maksud Jan to come from Pakistan to attend her granddaughter's wedding in Manchester. Would the right honourable gentleman specify what kind of employment a 72-year-old woman who does not speak English and has never left Pakistan is liable to be obtained in my constituency, where unemployment is 10.6%. Will he overrule this balmy decision and allow Mrs Jan the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity uh, to attend her granddaughter's wedding? And if the Home Secretary has said... Lucidity itself. I'm sure he's bringing it to an end. I am. I'm bringing it to an end. <laughs> what are you doing, Gerald? And if the Home Secretary has whispered to him that she, she, she can appeal, the wedding is on April the 2nd and the appeal procedure is too slow to make that possible. The Prime Minister. Um, to answer the right and all gentlemen very directly, I wasn't aware of the individual case. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of people who travel between uh, Pakistan and Britain every year. Uh, we do have to have uh, tough controls to prevent the abuse of our immigration system, but I would suggest that he takes up the case individually uh, with the Immigration Minister, the Honourable Member for Ashford, who has a superb grip on these issues, and I'm sure we'll be able to give him some satisfaction. Mr Peter Bone. We could sleep safely at night because we knew Lord Prescott would take over if Tony Blair is incapacitated. <laughs> what would happen if the Prime Minister is incapacitated? Um, I, I've been waiting for, for some time because I know that my honourable friend has asked this question to almost every single cabinet minister, including the deputy prime minister, who I think replied that he seemed to have a morbid fascination with the uh, end of the leader of the Conservative Party. All I can say is I have no plans to be incapacitated. We're, we're very relieved to hear it. Helen Goodman. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Further to the question, to the answer that the Prime Minister gave to my right honourable friend on the Leveson inquiry, he is of course absolutely right that we need a free press. The nation will not thank him, however, if he goes along with the suggestion from Tory peer Lord Hunt, the chairman of the PCC, in his proposal to use the defamation bill to legislate for a new system. The defamation bill is coming forward in September. This would preempt this would preempt the Leveson inquiry. Can the Prime Minister make it clear he won't do that? Prime Minister, I'm glad the Honourable Lady asked that question because I have absolutely no intention of preempting the Leveson inquiry in any way at all. I think if we look back to the debate we had in this House, both the Right Honourable Gentleman, the Leader of the Labour Party, and I said how important it was to trust Leveson to get on with the job, to give every signal that we want to be able to adopt what is proposed without there being sort of regulatory arbitrage between the parties. I think there is an understanding 
understanding on that basis. But given there is that understanding, I just repeat again, I think it's important that honourable members on all sides stress the importance of, of a free press in the health of our democracy. Last but not least, Mr Bob Blackman. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Hard-working families in my constituency are absolutely astonished that, that a, a benefit cap of some £26,000 is being opposed by the party opposite. Will my right honourable friend agree with me that we'll always make work pay and provide benefits for those that are unable to work? Well, I'm delighted, Mr Speaker, that my honourable friend caught your eye, because today is the day that the welfare bill becomes an act, and for the first time we will have a proper cap on welfare, supported by this side, opposed by that side, but backed by the overwhelming majority of people in our country. Order. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.